everybody, and welcome to New Books in Art. I am Yelena Kalinsky, the host of New Books in Art, and today we'll be talking to James Nisbet about his new book, Ecologies, Environments, and Energy Systems in Art of the 1960s and 70s, which recently came out with MIT Press. James is Assistant Professor of Art History at the University of California, Irvine, and his book looks at the intersection of different kinds of ecological thinking and art in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, he examines a wide variety of artworks from Alan Capro's Environments of the late 50s and 60s, the transition from minimalism to land art, including Robert Smith's and Spiral Jetty, Michael Heiser's Double Negative, to less well-known works like Peter Hutchinson's Animate Scale Models and Robert Berry's Radio Wave Installations. The book offers a view not so much of environmentalist art, but instead traces the shifting notions of ecology, including ideas about the material world and the interconnectedness of things that circulated in American culture during this period. Uh, So James Nisbet, welcome to the show. Thank you. Jamie, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us something about yourself, uh, where you were born, where you went to school. Uh, how you became interested in art history. Sure. Uh, I have lived a little bit all over the place. I am Canadian uh, by birth, uh, but I grew up in different places, uh, including Scotland and Texas. Uh, And my interest in art history comes from, I think, different experiences um, in moving around. I've always been interested in um, visual thinking, and it took me a while, I think, to realize Um, although it might seem obvious at first that visual thinking is perhaps best suited for thinking about the history of visual thought um, or its materialization in works of art. Um, And so in school, uh, I pursued a study of cinema, um, of philosophy, um, and it's actually through philosophy that I got to uh, the history of the skyscraper and of architectural history. And working on that material... Uh, sort of sparked an interest that uh, led me to uh, ultimately working on art. And uh, the interest in uh, my most recent uh, studies, so modern and contemporary art, um, come both through the kind of issues that have been circulating in that field uh, for the last 15 years or so uh, when I began my education Um, But also my interest in things like photographic media, uh, reproducible media in general, uh, which really served as kind of bridge from thinking about how, say, particular buildings in the late 19th century were received by historians because of the way that they were photographed to new kinds of conceptual photography to emerge in the late 20th century. Great. So... Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write Ecologies, Environments, and Energy Systems? Sure. Uh, it, it is a, a revision and expansion, a kind of rethinking of the dissertation that I wrote at Stanford University uh, that I finished in 2011. Um, and that dissertation uh, focused specifically on Walter de Maria's work, The Lightning Field, uh, which I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about a bit later. Um, And my thought in that project was to take the lightning field as the end point. It's a work that's finished in 1977. And so by the time it gets done, 
land art as an artistic movement that really began about 10 years earlier was more or less through with its first phase. And so it's an odd work and then it shows up rather late. Um, and so my thought was to take that work as something that had been gestating over the entire period of land art's development and look backwards. So each of the chapters opened with a different interpretation of the lightning field. They gave on to a different pocket of artistic activities, um, both of its maker, Walter de Maria, and other artists associated with land art, performance, conceptualism, and so forth. Um, so it really, you know, one chapter would look at the early 1960s and then the late 1960s, all the way up until the work's making. So in, in some sense, it was a, uh, a history in reverse. And in working that project through in that way, um, I was able to come across a whole um, series of different ecological ideas and ways of thinking about the environment um, that really seem to cut across conventional ways that we've understood both land art, but also artistic practices in general in the 1960s and the 1970s. And so the book that I wrote from that dissertation um, expands the purview of the previous study. So instead of looking at a single work and opening onto a field, it tries to think about the different ways that that field took shape, uh, the different kinds of conversations and media uh, that inform the intersection of art and ecology during those two really crucial decades. So that brings us to this word ecology, which comes up over and over and forms one of the major subjects of the book. Um, so can you just explain what you mean by the word ecology, um, since as a ecology as a field of knowledge that um, has a lot of bearing on artists' ecological investments in the period? Yes. Uh, well, ecology for me has now come to mean many things. Uh, in its most basic sense, ecology is our understanding of or is the way that things interact, the interaction of living and non-living things. It's the, the web of life, to use another of the metaphors that's often used for ecology. Um, but the term itself, of course, has different valences. So there's a scientific field of ecology. And that field um, is as old as the term itself, which is only about 150 years old. And the way that ecology as a science has been understood since the 19th century has changed quite dramatically. Um, furthermore, the way that ecology now has a social, a political, and an ethical uh, valence to it uh, is also something that changed fundamentally over the course of the 20th century. Um, so what I'm interested in is the way in which these different ways of understanding a basic phenomenon like ecology um, are also fundamental to how we deal with material, how we deal with not just ways of looking at the world, but the ways that um, objects exist in the world. And so ecology then becomes this uh, very... Um, telling and focused lens for looking at not just works of art, but the way that works of art become distillations for these political issues, scientific issues, um, more fundamentally issues that deal with just our way of imagining how things exist in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So two things that um, might come to mind for listeners uh, who are not familiar with the book yet um, are environmentalism and land art. 
Um, can you speak a little bit about how these two things fit into this wider field um, of art and ecology that you're sketching out? Sure. Uh, so environmentalism, as I understand it, um, is the politics around uh, earth care. Um, managing the sustainability of living relations in the world, uh, what we often refer to as the environment. Um, and though the environment and ecology have a lot to do with one another, um, environmentalism tends to have a more pointed, um, goal-oriented sensibility about it that ecology um, both shares but also uh, expands beyond um, and so environmentalism is uh, is a, a practice a kind of um, social awareness that happened to arise primarily in the wake of the Second World War or at least it really gained force particularly in the 1960s and so happens that during that very same decade um, a new artistic movement uh, took shape in, towards the latter end of the decade that we now typically refer to as land art. It goes by a few names um, that are based on early influential exhibitions. So sometimes this type of art is called earthworks. Sometimes this type of art is called earth art. Um, but more land art tends to be the more generally accepted term now. And what it refers to is a, a body of art that is either produced directly in the land, meaning instead of the historical tradition of painting the land, of painting landscapes, this type of work would be made with land, with dirt, with organic material. So this type of work can exist outdoors. It can be what we refer to as site-specific, meaning that it is made in a particular place and can't be taken anywhere else. It has to be seen in that place. Or this type of art, um, might deal more generally with issues and thematics and materials drawn from the land. So it might involve photography, it might involve a performance. Uh, these are things that can be exhibited in gallery, um, which is to say that land art as a movement uh, really encompasses a number of different ways of thinking about how to produce and display works of art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So really, your book is looking much more broadly than um, just the specific um, social and political critique of environmentalism or um, the, the specific um, practice of, of making open-air, large-scale works uh, of land art. Right, exactly. And that, I mean, because this work in its earliest stages uh, was looking at the lightning field uh, by Walter de Maria as one of these kind of outdoor site-specific earthworks. Um, I didn't want to, I don't want to reject that work, but instead think much more broadly about how it fits into a set of concerns um, that extend well beyond questions of simply what is the right way or the wrong way to treat a landscape. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and so in that way, land art and environmentalism, I think, as your question is suggesting, um, really fit together into uh, the way that a lot of these questions have been received. And so rather than um, throwing them out, per se, I wanted to think about them as operating within a much larger and more dynamic, ecological, if you will, um, field of relationships. 
Yes, so you begin your story um, with this uh, almost forgotten category of environments, uh, which Alan Capro coined in 1958 to describe something between maybe sculptural assemblage or, and stage design, um, where gallery rooms were filled um, with things, maybe incorporating light and sound, and visitors could pass through and interact on different sensory levels. So can you talk about the significance of this genre of environments um, for your account um, of this art? Sure. Um, yeah. With environments, I was struck uh, first and foremost by this category that, uh, frankly, I had never heard of. Um, it it would be incorrect to say it has completely disappeared in the historiography because there's been a few studies that do acknowledge um, the prevalence of this term. Uh, but to look at the criticism, the period criticism from the early 1960s, it's really quite startling um, to realize the degree to which um, so many important works of art were being categorized as environments. And so one of my questions in trying to think about where the intersection ultimately of art and ecology comes from is to think as well about what terms maybe preceded ecology per se as a way of thinking about how a work of art exists. And so environments then became uh, for me, a key way to get into this field of thinking, where we so often think about environmental art as synonymous with land art, work that's made outdoors, or work that's made with dirt or leaves or any kind of other organic material. Whereas what critics and artists meant by an environment uh, beginning in the late 1950s, as you say, coined by Alan Caprow, um, didn't necessarily involve any of those things. The environment, as they understood it, was a complete space, which is to say a work or a, a set of um, things that the artist created that themselves fashioned an environment, something that could be inhabited by the spectator. And the reason that this dovetails with uh, what happens later in the decade is because the idea of an environment itself was also um, coming into particular importance at that same time. Um, that our everyday use of terms like um, ecology or eco-anything else and environment and environmentalism um, is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, the word environment has been around in English for a couple hundred years. It comes from a verb which means to environ or to circumscribe. But to refer to things, uh, to refer to the environment, to think about um, the environment, to think in environmental terms, is something that only really came about during the 1950s and then, of course, with greater force in the 60s. So this artistic category is particularly timely then, and then it arrives at this moment that allows us to think through uh, in very concrete ways how people were understanding the importance of what an environment is. Um, if artists were claiming to create environments, uh, my question is to ask, well, what are the conditions for creating an environment? And it turns out that one of the really uh, fascinating but also scary things about the intersection of these artistic environments with advanced thinking in uh, science and engineering at that time 
is that an environment could in fact be created on its own terms, as if it were an enclosed capsule, um, something that would later show up in the 1960s, say, in the form of uh, terraria or you know, self-enclosed ecosystems. Um, but in the early stages of this, environments were being understood as something which could be essentially uh, fashioned out of thin air. And so, for instance, when Rachel Carson um, very influentially publishes Silent Spring in the early 1960s and then appears um, in television interviews and you know, across numerous formats defending her work because she was attacked on various fronts, one of the critiques of her project was that contaminating existing environments was not a problem because these contaminants belong to a new environment that petrochemical industries were fashioning upon the existing ground or landscape. And so rather than just a kind of knee-jerk reaction to Silent Spring, one of the more deep-seated questions that comes out of the reception of that work and that intersects precisely with what artists were up to at that time is whether or not an environment, in fact, could be created in this way. Um, Whether, in fact, one of the fallacies of Carson's arguments against the use of insecticides was, in fact, whether or not post-war technology and industry was capable of creating a new kind of very systematically managed world. And that's something that plays out not only in Caprow's environments and his use of technology, but also in works that then give on to ways of thinking about systems and the control of environments that come later in the 1960s. You talk about the, the modernist gallery environment and the failure of environments as types of Gesamtkunstwerk, and this parallels a bit um, into the scientific idea of environments as totalities in and of themselves. Right. Um, so can you just um, uh, tease that, that connection out a little bit more? Yeah, so the Gesamtkunstwerk um, is this notion of the total work of art that is most closely associated with the 19th century composer Wagner, but has had various modern iterations. And one of the really interesting things that happens with this notion that an environment is a total kind of space or is a total type of entity is different ways of artists thinking about how that totality could be or should be created. So what I term the modernist gallery environment takes this idea into a spatial terrain where artists conceive of the envelope of the gallery space as something that their work could control. And therefore, anything, any kind of perceptual information, sound, light, even touch in some of these works could exist within the envelope of that gallery space. But one of the things that happens is that through these different kinds of sensory engagements, other artists, um, artists particularly influenced by the role of uh, psychedelic or drug-infused experience during the 1960s, um, begin to think about creating total experiences through the manipulation of the senses themselves. Rather than having to surround the spectator with something, um, their works use light and sound and uh, usually kind of pulsating uh, environments to create this same sense of totality or of a total 
type of work, a total experience, but without having to actually enclose someone. So trying to create it basically through a manipulation um, of the mind rather than manipulation of a spatial envelope. And so how does that fit in with Rachel Carson's idea of environments and totalities of the ecosystem, for example? Uh, well, to my reading, what they're both playing out, and, and both here, I mean, is the, the industrial arguments against Carson and a number of these artworks are playing out this false sense that environments can be created as a whole entity, that it's Carson um, and Carson doesn't use the language of ecology much. It, it shows up sparingly in different places in her book. But um, one of the most important things about Silent Spring is that it has a very thoroughly worked through idea about ecological connectedness in the argument. So without going into technical terminology with her readers, anyone who became familiar with Silent Spring would have been exposed to a very forward-thinking idea for the year 1962, which was that any action taken to any entity within an ecosystem affects everything else within the ecosystem. That if one species dies off, it affects other species. That if one species grows too numerous, it affects other species. That nothing can be disconnected from one another within that ecosystem. Carson's book, therefore, becomes not just a watershed for the politics around insecticides. It anticipates, in many ways, a much more profound kind of ecological understanding that would begin to emerge in the coming years and something that therefore pushes through or breaks from the highly problematic way of understanding environments, both in the industrial complex and also in advanced artistic practice. Mm -hmm. And you pick this up in the second chapter where you address this kind of longstanding idea in the critical literature of land art of the 60s as uninterested and ecological concerns. So can you speak a little bit about how these prevailing histories equate ecology with sustainability or separate land art from the different networks of media that land art circulated through? So how do you, um, how do you address that, that critical literature? So to, to take up this assumption, which uh, would say that land art didn't have much to do with ecology, carries with it an underlying idea about what ecology is, which is quite narrow. So if ecology is understood to be the same, say, as environmentalism, as caring for the sustainability of particular environments, then in fact, land art, uh, in many cases, didn't really have much to do with ecology. But if ecology is understood in this broader sense as uh, these different ways of understanding materials and interactivity systems um, coming together, then in fact, uh, what interests me, and I think um, what interested uh, these artists greatly during this time, was ecology in this broader sense that while some of them were familiar with advanced terminology in the sciences. Most of them weren't. But that's one of the um, really compelling things about ecology during the 1960s, is that works like Silent Spring made this advanced type of thinking accessible to a large number of people um, in a kind of intuitive way 
without having the technological or the technical apparatus of ecology as a science attached to it. Um, and so what I do is I look at a number of these land art projects to understand the ways in which they are engaging with notions about the earth, um, notions about land that have everything to do with ecology without necessarily being environmentalist. And so how do the different media, photography, video, television, things like this, fit into this history of land art? One, one way to answer this would be to say that land art had its own kind of ecology of media. Um, but that, of course, is a very metaphorical way to think about ecology. But artists who began to work with the land, um, say Robert Smithson or Dennis Oppenheim, were themselves also interested in technology. One of the important things to understand when addressing land art is that going out into the land was not a way of turning one's back on technological advances or even on what was happening in the city or in the galleries. That this, in fact, was a much more extensive network of operating artistically. And so uh, photography and video and television become ways that, at a fundamental level, artists were communicating what was happening out in these far-flung places where they were making works in the desert or on abandoned sites. But those photographs, that reproductive media, also became integrated into how these works operated. So if you know, one of the most, if not the most famous work of land art is Robert Smithson's Spiral Jetty in the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Smithson um, published photographs that were taken by a professional photographer and then also released a film and wrote an essay about the Spiral Jetty. And each of those different aspects of the work should be understood as part of the spiral jetty as a complete entity. Spiral jetty is not simply a spiral made of rocks and dirt in the Great Salt Lake that has documentary media that were published about it, but rather the work is a multi-mediated work of art that exists in photography, it exists as a film, it exists textually in an essay that the artist wrote, and it also exists in a location um, that you can go visit. And so this notion that the work of art itself is a kind of dispersed entity um, is important to this ecological way of thinking about things like sight and how something which is rather singular, like an artistic object, can exist within a network. You write also about this turn from closed ecosystems in the art of Peter Hutchinson, for example, um, with his little beaker landscapes, to open ecosystems um, by integrating works into outdoor sites. Um, so can you speak about how this move from enclosed projects to ones that kind of open the work up to the world around it prompted um, a new critical language, no longer oriented to the monumental object within sculpture, but instead kind of the interrelation of objects within a system? So systems as a term is one that has incredible influence uh, during especially the late 1960s. Uh, but just like ecology, it's important to remember that systems uh, wasn't understood as one kind of way of thinking or one kind of uh, way of operating, that it also was a contested field. And so 
the distinction between an open system and a closed system becomes particularly important for land art. One of the works you're talking about uh, by an artist named Peter Hutchinson, uh, maybe I could describe for the listeners what these works look like, um, because unfortunately they haven't been exhibited, I don't think, since that time. So Hutchinson was a critic who's also an artist. And before he turned to land art, he was making um, the kind of sculpture that we might associate with uh, what became called art in space uh, or light in space in Los Angeles. So kind of plexi-formed sculptural objects made with bright colors that sat on the wall. And his particular investment in those objects was not on the technological side, but rather on the side of strangeness. He thought they looked like alien objects, alien forms. And so when artists began working outdoors, the transition for Hutchinson was the fact that so many of these people were working in the desert, which itself is a kind of barren, almost moon-like landscape. And so for him, these interests in uh, the extraterrestrial, the otherworldly, became manifested in, quite paradoxically, landscapes of the Earth. And so Hutchinson began to create what he called animate scale models for what he imagined would be massive living environments that he would put into these harsh uh, places. So in particular, he was interested in working in uh, places like Antarctica or on uh, volcanoes, in deserts. Um, and he made these small models that involve uh, usually glass test tubes or small vestibules uh, that he would fill with uh, very simple living ecosystems like uh, molds, for instance. Um, and they're models because he hoped to create them at a very grand scale in the landscape. And so what this suggests um, about working with systems, that, that systems um, carrying forward this kind of assumption about environments that had been problematic earlier in the decade uh, were being understood as things that could be created in their own totality, uh, that could be uh, completely controlled, that could be uh, completely enclosed. Um, and what also came to influence this way of thinking um, was uh, computer technologies, uh, specifically information technology where a system um, began to be understood as something that wasn't just being created in and of itself, but could be controlled in its entirety. Um, and so Hutchinson's work, perhaps more than any other um, of his colleagues, shows this notion of creating um, a freestanding, independent, um, totally manipulable ecosystem. And his work, though, tellingly, also proves a transition or provides a transition out of that both problematic but also very narrow way of thinking about um, ecological interaction. Because when he was given um, the opportunity to finally create a large-scale work on the land, he chose to go to this volcano in Mexico uh, that had recently erupted. And he was interested in this site because of the recent eruption. There wouldn't be much living on the rim of the volcano it would be essentially as barren a landscape as you could find. But instead of trying to place an enormous beaker or test tube on this location, he instead uh, crumbled up loaves of bread and covered them on the rim um, and left them for a few days in the heat. So that when he came back, they had turned into a kind of festering mold. And the insight for Hutchinson, as happened in a number of other projects right around the same time, was that 
any kind of interaction with these environments ultimately cannot be contained. It's always going to break outside of a kind of artificial barrier that the artist might place upon it. And so for Hutchinson, the transition happened when he actually got to work outdoors, uh, where for other artists like Walter De Maria, for instance, this transition happened in the very move from making artistic environments to making land art. Uh, in De Maria's case, he made a rather famous work of art in the city of Munich in 1968. That's often called the Munich Earth Room because of the fact that he later created a version of the work in New York in 1977 uh, called the New York Earth Room. In fact, the Munich work um, at the time uh, went by a different name. It was called simply the Landscape Show at Heiner Friedrich's gallery. And Di Maria had filled the gallery entirely with dirt, a couple feet high, and put a barrier so that nobody could walk into the gallery. And his idea was that people would come across the gallery, uh, they would come to the work, but the work would stop them from entering. And so the work would become, in a way, this purely conceptual entity. It would be just dirt that you couldn't actually traverse, that you would have to simply look at and think about. But what he didn't anticipate was the way that light entering Friedrich's gallery through the windows would interact with the dirt. So it began to evaporate the dirt more quickly than they anticipated. And in some cases, things began to grow in the dirt. And so for De Maria, this was a way of breaking out of this closed way of thinking about environments, as also it could be a closed way of thinking about systems, because there's always something that breaks through those barriers. Um, in this case, sunlight, whereas in Hutchinson's case, it was about the kind of festering of living forms themselves. So... In the second half of the book, you look more directly uh, at energy um, as an artistic material, prompted by this idea of, of sunlight coming into the gallery of the earth room. And in the third chapter, you deal specifically with process art and this idea of the propagation of energy through ecosystems. Really interestingly, you look at post-minimalist sculpture by Robert Morris, but then also conceptual art, the performance of body art, can you speak a little bit about how energy helps you to think through all these different art forms together and how that might help you get a grasp on shifting notions of ecology? Mm -hmm. Energy for me um, is one of the, the through ideas, if you will, for this entire project in that the idea of energy is conceived more or less around the same time as that of ecology. They're both products of the 19th century. Aristotle had used the word energy much longer ago, but how we actually understand it as the ability to do work is a product of the 19th century. And so ecology, at a very, uh, in its very basic sense, isn't possible without an idea like energy, because otherwise there's no way to understand or to think through how one thing in an environment or in an ecosystem can affect other things, a food chain, for instance, or a way of transferring potential work from one thing to another. And so thinking about the history of energy um, was one of the things that motivated my own approach to a number of the artists and artworks that I address. And perhaps most striking in my research uh, 
this concentration that I came across of people really explicitly addressing and describing their work in energetic terms around the year 1970. And the year 1970 is important here because it is the bridge between those three kind of practices that you mentioned, post-minimalist art that often gets referred to as process art, conceptual art from that time, and also body art. And so this chapter puts pressure on this word process in thinking about it in energetic terms, where process art, as it's been uh, conventionally received, refers to art in which we can see, or the spectator can see, the process of an object's making. So Morris, for instance, is an artist that is closely associated with process art. And in a project like Continuous Project Altered Daily, or any number of his untitled works involving things like thread waste, gives an array of material for the spectator to look at rather than forming it into a tight geometrical form. So if Morris was associated with minimalism in the decade before of works that were industrially produced and that came to the gallery in very tight geometrical configurations, post-minimalism, with its attendant term process art, would suggest that the spectator can now see the materials of an object more than a closed form that shaped them. If that is the conventional way of understanding process, it puts almost all of its emphasis on the procedure of the artist himself or herself. So the process that we appear to be looking at is the process the artist chooses to carry out on that material. If we take seriously, however, the importance of energy as a way of imagining these materials at this time, what it suggests is that the materials themselves are also interacting with the world and that artist and the process that the artist is attempting to carry out. And so process then becomes a much more powerful notion that's not just about carrying out a procedure that the spectator can appreciate, but it's rather an ongoing process that describes an interaction between what an artist is doing and what the material the artist is working with is also doing. And this is a notion that Morris develops rather rapidly from his first post-minimalist works that involve simply working with pliable materials like felt to a work that he did in Washington State, and also at a retrospective that he had in the year 1969 that involved steam, simply releasing steam into the environment, where that steam comes out of a very regularly shaped square grate in the ground, so speaking to Morris's minimalist legacy, but when it actually gets released into the environment, the shape of that steam, the shape of the work itself, becomes influenced by what kind of day it is, what the prevailing winds are, whether there's other moisture in the atmosphere, and even how spectators might be located around or even through that steam. And so Morris's work serves as this transition, as I understand the shift to process art, into thinking about how materials can become energetically engaged with the ecosystems around them. 
And then you interestingly bring in two paradigms for thinking about materiality and organizing the environment. You talk about Aspen and uh, Esalen. Um, so can you speak a bit about those two places and how they fit into the story of understanding materiality and the environment? Aspen and Esalen become two extremes, or two extreme ways of processing, if you will, where Aspen where they're, well, just describe what they share. They're both places, uh, Aspen, Colorado, now the well-heeled ski town that we know it to be, uh, wasn't always that way. It was uh, conceived as such only in the mid-20th century uh, when it was created as something of a total work of art, in fact, a place where people could travel to, to vacation, but also to, and I'm going to put some scare quotes around this, to better themselves through humanistic study. And so the Aspen Institute uh, is fundamental to the transformation of the town. And the Institute became a place where artists could take residency during the 1960s and early 70s, so the very moment that I address. And Aspen happens to be the place where Robert Morris is in residence when he makes the transition to post-minimalism. Aspen is a place that Dennis Oppenheim is in resonance when he begins making videos that involve covering his own body with rocks and leaves. So Aspen becomes this one node, um, as Esalen also becomes a node. Esalen had been founded as an institute around the same time, but on the West Coast, close to Big Sur, California, as a place for, instead of the humanistic betterment of the self, uh, the spiritual conditioning of the self, and where Esalen would take the notion of ecological energy and push it to a all-encompassing, uh, one might say, non-material level. Those at Esalen imagined that if the entire world were composed of energies, that the training of one's mind spiritually and religiously to be in harmony with those energies would in fact echo out into the world. So if that was an extreme for thinking about the non-materiality or the non-material shape of ecological energy, Aspen became a hub for the very control or shaping of the world as an ecological environment. For Aspen, not only was the site of an influential institute, but also of influential design conferences, one of which during the same period served as a high point for a clash between those wanting to act more openly with Western modern lifestyle and the ecological conditions of the earth clashed against those from industry who wanted to enact modes of design, and design here meaning top-down, control-oriented ways of shaping environments that could shape both a town like Aspen as also completely reshape cities, buildings, works of art, furniture, and also landscapes themselves. And so with these two extremes of the completely controllable notion of the environmental world and the non-material spiritual notion of the energetic world, 
those poles help to uh, want to orient the kinds of experiments that were played out in advanced visual art during that time. Mm-hmm. So as, as fallacies um, in each case, they serve as ways to orient ourselves to the much more fluid field of aesthetics uh, that emerges during the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, so uh, I just want to touch a little bit on the last chapter. We're starting to get uh, to run out of time. You talk in your last chapter about this decade-long gestation of Walter de Maria's lightning field over the span of the 1970s and connect it to this shifting approach uh, to ecology and the politics of ecology in that decade. So can you just describe the shape of that gestation and how it relates to the politics of ecology? So as I mentioned earlier, the lighting field is the place where this entire project began for me. And if I can add just a little biography to it, uh, I went on a Western loop through landworks of the United States one summer in a rented SUV. Uh, and the one work that and I, I was in uh, the Bay Area at the time at Stanford. And so, uh, you know, I drove down south and there's the very first works of land art are on, were on dried out lake beds just west of Los Angeles and in the Mojave Desert. So I drove across those in my SUV. I made it out to double negative. I made it to spiral jetty. The one work I didn't get to on that loop was the lightning field because it's just a little too far to drive to. It was the last of the major landworks that I visited. And what I realized when I got to the site, and visiting the site is unusual because you have to make advanced reservations with the Dia Art Foundation, and only six people can be on site at any one time. And those six people have to stay for nearly a period of 24 hours. You get dropped off, you stay the night in a cabin that is adjacent to the field, and you get picked up the next day. And what I realized when I was at the field, walking around it, sitting on the back of the porch, looking at the work, is that the lightning field both grasps or internalizes the most advanced aspects of land art. So notions of energy, of exchange, of earth and sky, of metal and electricity, while also enfolding the earliest, if perhaps even most problematic, aspects of ecological and environmental thinking. That the work itself is very much like one of those environments from the late 1950s. It's an artificial grid of steel poles placed into a landscape in which it looks like it utterly does not belong. Of course, this changes as you walk through the work, that the work enmeshes itself within the environment as the sun moves overhead and the relationship between those poles and the moving bodies of spectators within the work changes in very subtle ways. But what struck me about the lightning field is that it enfolds in both the back end and the front end, if you will, and it enfolds these extreme conditions of what happens within the overall arc of ecological work during the 1960s and 1970s. And so it seemed to me that it, it would be, and it turned out to do this, um, <laughs> thankfully, as I had anticipated, it seemed to me that it would be the most focused way of getting into what was actually going on 
during that period of development. So can you talk a little bit about how uh, De Maria shifts from making uh, sculptural objects in the gallery to this uh, outdoor uh, field? So De Maria's last gallery show, more or less, before the Lightning Field is completed, takes place in 1969. He has just gotten back to the United States from Europe. He had installed that exhibition of Earth that I described earlier in Munich in the fall. And in fact, he sent photographs of that work to New York so that people could see, people saw almost immediately after he finished that work in Munich, what it looked like because photographs were displayed within weeks in um, the same gallery, Duan Gallery, that he exhibited in that spring. So he's in Europe, he's doing earthworks, and he comes back in the spring, and he's offered a single artist exhibition at Duan Gallery. And Duan Gallery in 1969 was the place to show in New York City. This would be a, a major exhibition for him. And instead, however, of showing either photographs or sculpture that related to his most recent land art works, which he'd been doing for about a year, he instead displayed five minimalist objects, each of them a steel box on the floor with very sharp metal spikes coming out of it. And what interests me about this work is not just the object itself, but the advertisement that Di Maria distributed for the show. Because the advertisement doesn't show minimalist objects. It shows him laying down on the floor of the Mojave Desert in between two chalk lines that were of a work he had made called The Mile Long Drawing from the previous spring. And so what this suggests to me is that already in Di Maria's exhibition in 1969, he was creating a work of art that combined a material object with a reproducible media, in this case, advertising, um, copy, photography, and magazines. Because the work suggests, the overall project suggests that the real place to be is in the desert. To be in the gallery is to be in danger. And this was a word he also used to describe this exhibition, danger at Duan. That in Duan, there was simply these beds of spikes uh, that one could presumably impale oneself on. Um, visitors actually had to sign a release waiver to get into the exhibition, whereas the real work was out in the desert. And this becomes all more clear when we realize that De Maria then doesn't make any more objects like that for years, that he announces really his departure from the traditional, both minimalist tradition and also the uh, traditional gallery scene itself with this one last show in 1969 and then nearly a decade of working outdoors with land art projects. I thought it was really interesting how you talk about De Maria being accused of being an authoritarian and controlling people's uh, relationship to the lightning field. And I, I actually have also visited the field and I remember one of the things that, that stood out to me that I hadn't anticipated was all of the interactions with the people, the other five people who were staying overnight there. And so I wonder uh, if this kind of work also relates to uh, participatory art, maybe more recent um, social practice art. Have you made these kinds of connections or would you say that that's an extraneous uh, connection? No, I think that's. I think the connection is absolutely there. It's not something that I address in this project, in this book, 
but De Maria's art is, is very cognizant of these kind of social situations. Uh, so as an example, one of his earlier land art pieces called Las Vegas piece that he made um, in the fall of 1969 is quite simply a, a pattern that is drawn on a desert floor in Nevada using a bulldozer. So a bulldozer cuts into the desert floor into this pattern. And when you're at the work, you walk the lines of the bulldozer cuts to understand the shape of the piece. But what's in addition to the cuts themselves, what's interesting about Las Vegas piece is that De Maria understood the travel to and from the work to be part of the overall piece. So the work wasn't just lines in the desert. It involved an entire experience of going out, beginning in Las Vegas, finding the work, walking it, and then coming back to the city at the end of the day. And this social element of his work also shows up in, a, in one of his early land art works that he proposed for the 1972 Munich Olympics, but unfortunately was not able to realize. And this work would have involved a huge cut um, into the earth vertically on top of a rubble hill outside of the Olympic site that would have been capped by a very large uh, brass circle. And that circle was large enough that De Maria imagined it as not just a platform for viewing the Olympics below, but also as a stage upon which you would interact with other people and also be aware of being on display oneself. So in many ways, I think of these works as akin to what Dan Graham is doing with a video and visibility during that same time in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And so each of these things shows up in a more filtered way in the lightning field in a way that that work, like a few of De Maria's most important pieces, really brings together numerous threads that had been percolating in his own practice in the preceding decades. Well, Jamie, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we've only touched on a fraction of the very interesting projects and readings that you have in this book. But before I let you go, I want to ask you the traditional final question on new books in art, which is what are you looking at or working on now? Since art historians look as well as research and write, I'm taking mm -hmm. the liberty to amend the traditional uh, new books final question. So what are you looking at or working on now? Well, one of the things I'm working on and looking at uh, comes out of these works that I was just discussing by Walter de Maria um, in Munich and also in the desert in Las Vegas that contribute to a series of late works that he did in Japan and in Western, unit, uh, Western Europe using massive spheres. So thinking about the legacy of, say, the whole earth in the imagination as a spherical form and of minimalism, uh, these geometrically precise objects, to the artist's late work. So that's one of the projects I'm working on. I'm also continuing to think about uh, ecological issues and media, in particular um, a project that I'm interested in right now about smog and photography, the photography of smog, uh, which in the case of an artist book by Bruce Nauman called either L.A. Air or Lair, depending on how you want to pronounce it, produces these objects as abstractions this notion that smog is something that we ultimately cannot see and experience in the case of photochemical smog like we have here in Los Angeles. That like many ecological 
conditions and many ecological problems. Um, smog is something that we cannot directly experience, that it comes to us in more nuanced, filtered ways. And so moving forward, one of the big concerns of mine coming out of this book project is about not only these kinds of dilemmas that attend ecological thinking, but also to my own historical thinking about the longer legacies of things like the cultural history of energy and also of ecology and its interactions with the arts before the explosion that happens in the 1960s through land art and other very recognizable art movements. So I've been thinking about recently the formation of not just ecology, but also energetic thinking in the 19th century, which happens to coincide with the invention of photography as well. Those all sound like fantastic projects. So I look forward to, uh, to them coming out. I want to thank you for being on the show today. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Yelena. It's been my pleasure. We've been speaking to James Nisbet about his book, Ecologies, Environments, and Energy Systems in Art of the 1960s and 1970s. Thank you for listening.